Tazcam. I'm outdoors. Hi, everybody, and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. I'm coming at you not live from my backyard where it is 62 degrees. The weather report indicates that Wednesday we're due for between 6 to 12 inches of snow. But as they say in Oklahoma, if you don't like the weather, just wait a minute. Chris, how are you doing? Well, I'm I'm perched in an Airbnb in another part of Vegas. I managed to move out of my condo. I'm in temporary uh, limbo for basically a month until the paperwork on the place uh, in Boulder City comes through, and then I have to do some serious. Uh, well, hopefully fun renovations, you know, the stuff that I'm going to be doing is the painting and ripping out carpet and stuff. So it's a little bit uh, temporary and in limbo, but, you know, that's the way it is. And uh, the mood is overall good, although I am very tired after getting out the door. Yep. As you have said on this show before, when your mind is in a room, the room is also in your mind and you're switching rooms and the brain has to catch up. Today, we have a little bit of a weekend dissonance. We have some fun things to talk about. Chris is also going to have a tool, practical tip, and a dream for us. But right here at the top of the show, we'll just rip this Band-Aid off. Chris, what is my mental challenge for the day? See, with these mental challenges, I'm supposed to be uh, mentally ambidextrous. I'm given five words to choose from, none of them this week being ambidextrous, by the way. And I have to run on two, sometimes three trains of thought at the same time. And it's, all joking aside, my favorite part of recording this podcast. So, uh, what you got for me today? Okay, all right. Well, you've been given your five words to choose to, and now here is your imaginative challenge, which sounds simple, but is not. And this is something that uh, my students really end up, uh, well, they start struggling with it because they realize how, how tricky it is, but it's one of mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. exercises that makes us realize not just how mysterious language is, but how intimately connected language is with whatever idea we have of culture, capital C. Because we don't just make stuff up out of nowhere, uh, although that is your challenge today. I want you to look at the very complex notion of the idiomatic expression. The idiomatic expression. Phrases that have to be understood whole. They're very difficult to break down into component parts. And they're, uh, they, they feature in almost all of the major world languages. I think you could probably say they can be found in every language if you are a little bit elastic, but certainly the 10 major world languages. There are things that, that native speakers somehow intuitively get onto and they're very contextual often. And anyone trying to learn that language usually fumbles around a little bit. But they have a lot to do with language coming out of oral traditions and essentially poetry. That's Mm -hmm. one of the arguments where language began. So I want you to think of of some expressions. I'll give you a couple models. 
close is only good in horseshoes and hand grenades. And hand grenades, yep. I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out. Mm-hmm. Okay? You get what's going on there. I want you to come up with a completely newly minted original idiomatic expression. Something that is baby soft and almost doesn't have any fingerprints. They're still forming. Something that is a category breaking idea. Very challenging to do. Uh, But it has to be something that's working on a kind of have a beer at the bar with the boys level. Something that could be understood but is nonetheless completely new to us all. Okay? Just a little okay. challenge. Just a little challenge. Oh, just a little challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I understand my challenge. Moving into the week in dissonance, there's been a lot that we could talk about. I want to start off with some listener mail, though, because we got this great email from listener Ryan, uh, who also attended our uh, our last happy hour. And Ryan says about the last episode, Excellent discussion today, gentlemen. I recently listened to JRE episode 1767. That's the Joe Rogan experience. We can get to him a little bit later in our Week in Dissonance. With his guest, James Lindsay, who at the 2 hour, 12 minute, 35 second mark, brings up the inventor of the term microaggression and founding president of the Black Psychiatrists of America, Chester Pierce. Lindsay claims Pierce was involved in MKUltra, at least to the extent that he participated in the LSD drugging and killing of an elephant named Tusca or something. Oh, anyway, wow. anyway, Pierce was particularly interested in how TV influenced inferiority complexes in black children, and from this interest, possibly combined with a penchant for brainwashing himself, would become a chief consultant on Sesame Street. Great mail, Ryan. Thank you. Ryan, that's outstanding. Yeah. That is really outstanding. That this is what we're talking about in terms of building community and and uh, the sharing of strange information. That's fantastic. Yeah, I thought that was great and I thought that tied in nicely to a lot of overarching conversations we have on this show about where exactly the influence of not just children's television but adult television or social media comes from and it has a very strange tendency when you get to the higher ups in these companies to always link back to the cia very curious if you ask me there always seems to be some kind of cia connection well you know they they the Cold War, and really since then, has given them an enormous budget. And also, they're one of the government agencies that probably have the least due diligence in terms of reporting uh, budgetary uh, items. So they have a lot of latitude. And I think that there must be some very... I mean, the, the, the people that we know that have been in, uh, you know, at the top of the hierarchy are always very, very strange. And so it's not surprising that they've managed to find 
some very peculiar people to support for any number of very dubious projects. I mean, you look at the, the, the group of psychologists uh, that they were supporting through the 60s, basically to the Reagan era. I mean, some of those people were, you know, yeah. you, you, you struggle to believe that they could have ever been employed, let alone supported, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So lots of interesting stuff there. As far as the as the weakened dissonance goes, I know you have uh, a bit of a commentary on the current kerfuffle, which is really something that I could not get away from on my social media feed. I muted the words Spotify, Rogan, and I didn't do Neil or Young because those are too, uh, you know, too commonplace. I didn't want to lose too much there. And yet I still saw this everywhere. People coming out uh, proudly proclaiming that they had canceled their Spotify subscriptions because of this very strange fight between two several times over millionaires. So can you give us the skinny on what's going on with Joe Rogan and Spotify and Neil Young? Okay, well, I'll, I'll at least be able to sort of run down how I see it. Uh, I think people would know that Spotify uh, has really gotten very deeply involved with Joe Rogan to an enormous tune of, of over $100 million. I mean, he's mm. uh, bringing in uh, 11 million listeners. He's become uh, so significant that he's just sort of too hard for Spotify to ignore. And Neil Young and Joni Mitchell and Niels Lofgren, who's been a guitarist for uh, Bruce Springsteen, as well as being a solo artist, are among the three sort of music uh, icons who have made quite a big uh, moral stand of, of pulling their music off the Spotify platform, specifically mm-hmm. because they feel that Joe Rogan is broadcasting misinformation, and they characterize it as uh, malicious misinformation about COVID. They're not talking about any other aspects of of his programming. Uh, I mean, I think there's quite a few controversies that he's been involved in, and I'm a little surprised that there's any question about that, because how can you reach that level of stature as a podcaster? Uh, You know, after all, we're running a podcast here. We don't have 11 million listeners. You're not going to reach 11 million people and strike a $100 million international deal if you're not controversial, you know? I think that that's Mm -hmm. in and of itself a little strange. But there are two things that strike me about this. One, and I I think that we do have some listeners who are uh, in the business of trying to be in the music business and trying to get their work really uh, up on Spotify and get attention on Spotify. I'm in that category. Mm-hmm. And I don't have the luxury of going, well, I'm going to take my stuff off Spotify. Um, you know, it's, I think there's something a little bit odd about that position. But what, what strikes me about this is that I get confused. And I think this is an ideal discussion point for, for the week in dissonance, because I wonder, well, who is the rebel here? Who are the rebels mm-hmm. and who's the establishment figure? Um, are the line, have things reversed? You know, Neil Young and Jenny yeah. Mitchell started off as 
you know, the rebels against the establishment. And now they're sounding, you know, kind of establishment to me. Um, the other thing is that, you know, both of them, I mean, I think they're fantastic musicians and they're, they're great songwriters, great world songwriters, not just great American songwriters. They've been both very important to me. Uh, but I do know that they were amongst the first artists to make the big time to start writing about what a pain making the big time is or was. Pink Floyd right. might be another group. You know, Neil Young says, I need a crowd of people, but I can't face them day to day. And Joni was saying, you know, I'll, I'll play if you give me money or if you're a friend to me. But the one-man band by the Quick Lunch Stand, well, he was playing real good for free, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they've been multimillionaires for a very, very long time. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think we, we kind of need to remember that. Every once in a while, I start to, you know, remember again that some of these, you know, heroes were multimillionaires in their 20s when I was sleeping on other people's floors, you know? Right, um, yeah. And I, I, don't, I don't think we can really, you know... I don't think we should put that aside. It doesn't diminish their talent, doesn't diminish their hard work, all the years of touring. I mean, Neil Young was touring all the time. I mean, he, definitely hardworking people. But nonetheless, a lifetime of limos. And now they're coming out with a stand uh, that they are presenting as woke, moral, idealistic the right side of history and i don't know if i completely buy that you know no i don't think i do either it brings up some interesting points here uh specifically about rebellion in general i think that a very important question that people have to ask themselves at a at a certain point is whether or not the government and all its bureaucracy and red tape and backstabbing and personal vendetta and personal, you know, uh, ambition is the government, capital T, capital G, something to be trusted or something to be sort of looked at skeptically out of hand. I think this whole COVID thing has really rearranged the way people look at the government and sort of adjust their relationship to rebellion um, because the same people I often say you know when I hear uh, people talk about me in particular which they do at length and about how I've changed over the past two years I find that to be very bizarre because I feel like I haven't changed at all I feel like everybody else has changed I thought we were on the side of questioning these things that are clearly driven by a profit motive at the expense of people i mean i i don't feel like it's too bizarre to say that you know four years ago if i were to have gone on a rant about the pharmaceutical industry whether it was in relation to the opioid crisis or um you know it's it's drugs not doing what they're supposed to do or in some cases harming people to the tune of multi-billion dollar lawsuits i feel like people would have been with me there 
And so it begins to seem very much like uh, team sports. You know, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young are on a team, and when that team happens to be in power, they're, they're kind of flopping back and forth between the rebel and, you know, the jackboot. And so <laughs> there's, there's, no, there's no spiritual rebel there anymore. I just, I can't, I can't, uh, I know that Joe Rogan is a rich man and that Spotify is also a multi-billion dollar corporation, but I, I can't see how uh, wanting to shut down honest inquiry into some of these issues uh, is rebellious at all. Well, I agree. I mean, I think for starters, one of one of the, the concerns, it, it looks really like uh, that the, the the issue here of, of COVID information really isn't the issue at all. The, 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 the concern is that Joe Rogan has managed through a grassroots bootstrap effort, managed to build himself up into being a world media figure and that some people don't like that. And I think that that, that is, you, you can't say that's not part of it uh, because, mm-hmm. I mean, if he didn't have the platform, there wouldn't be the discussion, you know? There really wouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the thing that just amazes me is that how did we get to a point where, I mean, the idea of, of our weakened dissonance you know, is the idea of the union idea of things becoming their opposite. And this is happening mm-hmm. now so fast and so completely. It, it, it's almost head spinning, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. it really... Why do we have one group insisting about vaccination cards with a, a level of uh, draconian intrusiveness that is, is just sort of startling? And mm-hmm. yet... Any, you know, voter ID? Oh, no, that's not good. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, right, wait a minute. Right. What about consistency here? I mean, I, right. I, I just can't get my head around the inconsistencies. And, and I think one of our concerns is that there is a, unquestionably a point where, where dramatic inconsistencies within society, you know, any kind of society frame becomes massive incoherence that then translates at the personal level into anxiety, depression, dissociation, and potentially uh, suicidal impulses, which is what we're we're seeing. And Mm -hmm. that's not coming from uh, the economy. That's not coming from whether Russia will invade the Ukraine. That's coming from these deep inconsistencies that pile up minute by minute by minute. And you think, let's just try to break some of those down. I mean, I, I, that's what I don't get about this. Um, and I don't know what the Neil Young, Joni Mitchell thing. I mean, I, I guess that you could say that they can afford the loss of, of revenue, which a lot of mm-hmm. artists who are mm-hmm. struggling can't. They're lucky to get any attention from Spotify. Uh, so there's that, and that that's not their fault for having you know uh, been you know great artists for half a century, um, but they're taking an idealistic stance against a certain kind of information 
or is it against free inquiry and the stimulation of debate and discussion? That's the problem for me is it seems like, well, what would they, would the, how would, if they could script, re-script Joe Rogan right now, We'll say, okay, look, if they didn't like what he said so far, we're going to put that in the past. How would they script him going forward that they would approve of that? And the moment you put that frame on it, that sounds really quite perverse, I think. I mean, who wants to script so someone else, yeah. you know? I th- yeah, I think so too, which brings me to my particular week in dissonance, which is there was a sort of... In some small town somewhere, you'll forgive me that I didn't look into this too deeply, but there's once again a debate or a kind of um, problem that many liberal authors are having on Twitter because in some small town somewhere, some book was taken out of an elementary school library, which you and I have talked about on the show before, uh, particularly with relation to thinking, you know, hey, maybe there maybe there is a certain age that children should be exposed to certain overtly violent or sexual themes. Um, but when I saw this online, you know, these people talking about how, uh, you know, they're trying to ban books, they're trying to stifle free speech, I felt like, uh, you know, that move that Hitchcock would pull all the time where he'd move the camera back but zoom in at the same time. Right. I can't remember the, the technical name for this technique, but it creates this kind of feeling like your head is being flushed down a toilet. Um, that's how I felt when I saw that, because these are the people who for the past two years have been demanding that people who spread information that they don't like, a.k.a. misinformation, uh, become deplatformed, demonetized, persona non grata, within society so i just couldn't believe that (laughs) that these that these people would all of a sudden uh be complaining about books being banned i mean is is there no self-awareness at all no principles at all that's what we're really in a crisis of right now i think is a crisis of principle and we're seeing that people don't really don't really have the ones that they profess they really have one principle and that is they want to be kept safe at all costs and they will contort and uh, do yoga poses and gymnastics moves and whatever they have to do to feel safe but nothing principled nothing that would put them in in danger well that's the interesting question i suppose is it really a a crisis of, of principles uh or is it a fundamental uh, psychological double bind where people, mm-hmm. in fact, are very, very aware uh, inside their own little worlds uh, what, what they really feel and what the real situation is. They just don't want to say that. They don't want to accept that. They don't want to lose. They don't want their team to lose any ground. And there we I, go. I, I that's think it. that's yeah. really the, the issue. And we're only mm-hmm. going to see more and more of this uh, as we head closer. To, I mean, the midterm elections are somewhat of an artificial, uh, you know, checkpoint 
uh, boundary line. And yet, on the other hand, they are pretty important, and at least they're 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 a known thing that's on the horizon. And I think that that a lot of the these frictions within American society are only going to escalate as we get closer uh, to that. And and I think that the result is is going to be well is already very clear. Uh, in, in many people's minds, and their anxiety levels grow around that, and the levels of contortion grow. You know, I think it's going to be mm-hmm. quite bizarre. The contortion, you know, that we're going to see is is people try to to adapt to uh, <laughs> what is really a, a it's a it, it's already kind of a foregone conclusion, like, and it's probably yeah. just very difficult to accept. You know. Um, but here's an interesting thing. I, I happened to, uh, I was um, moving, I, I've got stuff in my car that I want to, you know, basically, you know, I don't want to have to move that into my uh, my Airbnb thing, and I was deciding on, on what to bring in and what not. So I went to uh, this big open parking lot to kind of have, you know, the chance to open all my doors and, and really look at the inventory. And it happened to be right next to a McDonald's. And the, the drive-through traffic was going ahead. Uh, but there looked to be like these sort of, not crime scene tapes, but sort of something, you know, chains around the entrance and, and going in. And I, I watched this, this big family come out. And the husband and wife, mother and father, were saying, well, there's no, no eat-in dining, you know? because they can't mm-hmm. find the workforce. And, you know, mm-hmm. this whole thing mm-hmm. just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. This is worse than it was two years ago. And they were having this big debrief on, you know, basically the downstream effects of COVID and inflation and supply chain problems and labor shortage. And they you could have really just broken down the whole crisis of the moment in about a 10-minute segment of their conversation. And that's what voters, that's what people on the street, that's, I mean, if, if McDonald's customers aren't your average Americans, I don't know who is. And if what they were saying in any way represents the mood of the country, wow, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's what I hope a lot of listeners and people in general start taking away from this particular time that we're in right now. I think what you said is very important because if the average American family can't go out and eat chicken fried steak at an all-you-can-eat buffet, there is a real problem. I really wish people would think about how they've managed to survive the past two years and largely not always, but largely, it's people who do not have uh, families to feed. It's young, liberal, usually single professionals in highly urbanized areas with many choices for things like DoorDash and what have you. But I've experienced similar things too. There have been places that have been closed down uh, due to COVID, right? Due to people getting COVID and not being able to work. Uh, But also places, I've seen help wanted signs for the past year. It's honestly one of the feelings of having a safety net 
that I have living here if the for you know touch wood but you know if my editing ever doesn't quite work out I can go work at the 7-eleven no problem and I will be hired in about 15 minutes because there there are signs everywhere but yeah no I think it's just so important to get your head out of the news and eavesdrop on a local American family and really take the pulse of what's going on well, I, I, you know, we can we could go a step further, and uh, one of the things that uh, I think I've shared that I have access through friends from the past, this really amazing sort of media analytics service, which sometimes, I mean, I, it, it the, the level of information is, is just way too much to process, and I'm not really in the business of being, of teaching media studies right now, so I, I only tune in to a little bit, but... Uh, over the last six months, the uh, the service behind this uh, has really deepened and enriched their offering. They're really looking at analyzing trends. They're they're able to process a lot more pure visual information rather than you know text, and looking mm -hmm. at ads, and and then they do have so all of this is ai driven but then they have a team of really really bright people uh in, based in a few different places not just new york or los angeles or london they're they're around the world and uh one of the things that that has emerged as a commentary about the american situation is that the presentation of the world the reality in in ads whether they are on tv main network tv or whether they're on the internet is that they have become more and more and more elitist more and more uh prosperity driven less and less representative of where people are really at and to the point where we have the biggest schism, and that's one of our, the biggest amount of dissonance between the, the reality as presented in ads and the reality at street level, particularly for families, you know, like the, like our, the McDonald's family that I just saw this morning. Uh, there has never been a time since pre-World War II coming out of the depression where there has been such a disparity in how the world is presented the commercial mm. world of advertising is at a complete uh, disconnect and I think that's mm. really amazing I think so too I think that this would be a good point in the show to close the book on the week in dissidents for this week and move into some more of the meat you've been uh, teasing a particular tool that I'm interested in hearing about. Right. Well, this uh, this relates to a lot of things that we've been talking about. Uh, it relates to some key words that that you know circulate like bad air in our current society. Words like the narrative, spin, uh, fake news. These kinds of phrases that have been, they've been around for a while, but it's interesting to track them in terms of media use. And this is one of the things I like about media analytics. You can see how, in, in at least general terms, 
how much more prevalent some of these, these words have become. But I want to focus on individual phrases as a way of understanding this team orientation, this uh, breakdown you know, in society, this kind of civil war, this ideological civil war that people have going on. There are three phrases uh, that I want to throw out to you, David, and I want you to uh, take a risk and identify which side of the ideological divide you think these are most uh, likely to be used by. I'm not saying entirely that they're only the property of one side. I'm not saying that. So I hope listeners don't hear me saying that. But I am saying that if you had to bet money, Vegas money, on which side, that you would have an answer. Okay? Here are the three phrases. Dog whistle. Left. Bogeyman. And false equivalencies. Those three phrases. Okay, dog whistle is definitely on the left boogeyman uh, I put boogeyman on the right because I've heard the term liberal boogeyman a lot and then false equivalencies I would also put on the right how did I do okay well that's interesting um, well according to uh, you know the uh the service that is, is looking into is that I, I'm, I'm referencing, all three of those are pronounced oh. decidedly leftist uh, God damn it. phrases. Decisively. I felt, that I felt that in my gut, too. This is a good lesson. Always go with your gut. I, <laughs> I should have known. It's, I mean, in, in percentage terms, let's break that down. Dog whistle comes in at about 87 to 89% left. Boogie yep. or bogeyman comes in at about 90%. And false really? equivalencies is 100%. Almost, no way. Yes, 100%. Yes. Oh my goodness. Okay. Wow. I mean, this, these That's, are just... This is great. This is... No, I like this because this actually uh, shows that, you know, that I don't have a handle... My, my perception of it is clearly not... I could have sworn I've heard false equivalency being uh, battered around on, on Tucker Carlson and the like, but hey, if that's the number, that's the number, man. Well, look, this is... It's a, it's a monthly snapshot thing, so I, I, mean, I think you have to take everything with you know, a grain of salt and caramel, you know, uh, of course. But in general terms, I found that, that if you track this over six months... I found that these results are, are very interesting and, and pretty much on the money. Uh, they at least help to, uh, I mean, all these things can ever do is, is, is validate some intuitions you might have, and they're designed to give some inspiration and some uh, handholds for people wanting mm-hmm. to do more research and investigation. Um, okay. So that's really the purpose. But I, I do think that there's something... Uh, to me, uh, I wasn't surprised by this, and, and I felt like that did validate a lot of my uh, 
anecdotal experience. Um, I mean, I, I could really see, I, I, ha, I know a couple of people in my life who are almost emblematic of those three expressions. And they use them in a kind of constellation way. And that's the other thing that's interesting is if you, uh, if you tend to use one, it's very likely that you might be using two or all three. And, and there's mm -hmm. a, a whole sort of set of perhaps 10 other <laughs> phrases. But if we just accept whoever is using them, whatever side of any divide, is there a common element to them? And I think you'd have to say, yes, there is. That they are, all of them, uh, rhetorical in the extreme, and yet yeah. completely not rhetorical, because they have no substance behind them whatsoever, necessarily. All they really are is insults. Mm -hmm. You know, and that is not what what rhetoric meant to the ancient Greeks. That it wasn't how they started that whole platform of of rhetoric as a tool of persuasion or a tool of analysis. They didn't say, well, I'm just going to call somebody a jackass, and that's that's my argument, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. But <laughs> dog whistle and bogeyman, bogeyman, right. you know, are really just ways of saying, well, that's, that's fake. You, you're not, there's, mm -hmm. there's nothing really there. And that's all that someone is right. saying, you know? Well... Well, a dog whistle in particular would be used a lot during the Trump presidency um, because they would analyze his speeches like the Zapruder film and look for any instance of a kind of word that was a dog whistle to his followers to uh, kind of, we mentioned the Manchurian candidate last episode, you know, sort of activate his followers into acts of racial violence, right? Um, you know, Trump says... Uh, ice cream cone and the next thing you know it a, a prominent black actor has been covered in bleach and and a noose has been put around his neck that kind of thing um so i could see boogeyman being used in relation to um what's the word that i'm looking for here sort of downplaying right-wing concerns right like Oh, this is the latest Republican boogeyman, drag queen story hour. It's the new Republican boogeyman, which is totally, uh, you know, not taking their concerns seriously, which I see all the time, which is just really interesting. Whenever the right has an issue with something that's going on in the culture, they're like, oh, that's the right's latest boogeyman. Like, we have to make sure. And then the false equivalence thing is really interesting to me because... There, there really isn't anything that is exactly equivalent, right? When you make an analogy to something else, they're not going to quite line up. They're not going to be mirror images of each other. They're going to experience another term that I've been fond of lately, chirality, which is the inability of a mirror image to exactly match itself. Um, so anything, really could be a false equivalency depending on where you look at it from but that is uh i see it now i see it now that you've mentioned it well the assumption is that i mean false equivalency is, is a really good one uh because 
that to me actually is a personal dog whistle. The moment I hear someone use that expression, I for for complicated uh, emotional and extremely idiosyncratic personal reasons, I will never want to have anything to do with that person in in a kind of business <laughs> sense. Or, and I, I I don't I don't have a defense for that, but I don't need one. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's a purely intuitive sort of thing. But if I stand back and analyze that a little bit, the first thing is is it does make the assumption that someone has posited an equivalence, you know, mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily mm-hmm. the case at all. They might have put forward right. a simple, you know, dichotomy. S- uh, they they might have put forward a very sharp juxtaposition, you know, mm-hmm. for for exactly mm-hmm. the reason that there, there's not an equivalence. So I think it's just that word false. It's it's, mm-hmm. but all three of these expressions are about invalidating a person's perspective instantly, and I mm-hmm. think it's it's interesting that the that the left is so often focused on, you know, well, don't invalidate my perspective, you know, well, then don't don't flip that around the other way. I mean, it right. it brings to mind L. Ron Hubbard's first principle. Of, of social politics always 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 accuse the other party of doing exactly what you're doing just be louder and first right yep. you know mm-hmm. uh, so I think that and this in a weird way I think harkens back to our weakened dissonance question that you put forward about the uh, the question of are we facing a crisis of, of principles and I would say absolutely of course yes we are no question about it in a, in a much uh, in a kind of giant aerial satellite view but I think in the context of what we've been talking about in this episode no I don't think there is a crisis of, of principles I, I think there's a crisis of uh, just simple um, honesty you know, and I don't know if that's even getting to the principal level. I think people are wanting to simply insult the other side, yeah. and yeah. the the quicker they can get in with invalidating a position, that's their only argument because they really don't know where to go after that. You know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen it firsthand. You know, uh, you just start getting the kind of. Uh, the bad words thrown at you and there there is definitely a lack of interest in anything having to do with the other side um it doesn't matter what the information is the information has to come from a particular place although that isn't always true either because i've seen people who've switched their opinions on on the current, you know, pandemic, for example, labeled as turncoats and, you know, obviously paid off by such and such person to, to say the things that they've said. But I think what you're saying is very simple, but it also feels to me to be very true that we are literally just in an era of mudslinging. And I mean, at some points I want to just say, do you guys just, do you guys just want to fight? And just get it not with guns right but do you just need to put on some boxing gloves and just go go hit each other a little bit maybe or that some sumo wrestling suits you know get get big inflated 
things. Well, I, I think that that is you're getting to what the, the gist of this this tool insofar as it is a tool. I think if we're very, very uh, astute and listening closely to the words mm-hmm. that people use, we can very quickly decide to what extent someone wants to really engage in any kind of discussion, debate, or interchange. I mean, put aside you know, general socio-political conflict. Is someone's intention to actually listen to you and to engage with you and to enjoy your company in any way. And if you hear certain words, and you know, we're, we're always you know, being told about triggering, you know, well, yeah. let's, let's go with that. Let's say, okay, that's yeah. a fair, that's a valid thing. If I hear false equivalence, false equivalencies, that's a trigger for me and I go, no, okay, <laughs> you yeah. know? Right, uh, right. Because I know that the person, wherever the situation where that would be uh, an accurate way of describing something, an accurate assessment, I know that the person would have, uh, wouldn't, you wouldn't use that expression, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I, mm-hmm. I, I know mm-hmm. that there's something about the configuration of that intellect, education, personality, uh, general level of intention and intentionality that I, I don't want to have anything to do with. So, yeah, yeah I, I'm right. triggered and I'm out of there, you know? Fair enough. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Having some, some strict lines and boundaries that you don't cross is sort of the other half to this intellectual curiosity that we talk about often. Because, you know, you do run the risk of, you know, if every idea, every reality tunnel is open to you, you might spend a lot of time going down tunnels and and to be honest just suffering fools that you don't have to do i've been thinking about this a lot with people who i interact with right i'm often criticized for not engaging with people who argue with me online and i normally say something to the effect of well i could just i could just see that this wasn't going anywhere right and i can tell through a tweet or an email or what have you that there is no reality that I live in where anything that I say is going to change your mind and certainly nothing you say is going to change my mind. So why waste my time? Well, look, I think that's fair enough. And I think the idea of, of being open-handed and open-minded is is so unusual. Uh, I was listening to something that I, 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 I was surprised that I got engaged with it, but uh, it was uh, it was it was on a, you know one of the most sort of contentious uh, subjects of, of my lifetime. It just goes on and on and on. Uh, abortion and uh, a woman was saying that you know what the pro-choice uh, ha- movement side of the uh, argument needs to understand is that the pro-life position has has really changed uh, it, it its language and thinking. And mm-hmm. it isn't the 1970s anymore. And I thought, look, mm-hmm. that's kind of like a, you know, that's a good start to a, a discussion. And that's what she was, that was her job. That was what was going to happen. Well, she just got bombed. Any idea mm-hmm. that, like, no, look. <laughs> and no one in the audience yelling uh, at her stopped to think, well, look, this woman was hired to give 
uh, a presentation about tactics and strategy in terms of public messaging, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. she was doing that. <laughs> she was doing that. Right. And she was giving uh, the opposition credit for not being in the same place that they were in, in 1975 and saying right. to her team that, look, we need to maybe revise our playbook. Well, I thought that was a fairly neutral start to what could have been, you know, an interesting discussion. Nah, forget it. Just the very thought of giving the other side any credit, you know, for change, mm-hmm. growth, development, evolution in, in tactics and strategy. No. Nah. And I don't know what, what the what the expectation of this sort of uh you know, speaker was, you know, what did people think she was going to say? You know, just start yelling and, and, and you know, shaking mm-hmm. fists? That's not very productive. I, I'm reminded of the television show Game of Thrones. Did you ever watch this show? <laughs> I watched some of the famous episodes. The Blood and yeah. the Sex and the Dragons. Exactly. Well, there is a, a storyline in that show where our protagonist, who has been kind of banished to the outer reaches of the kingdom, right? He has to guard a wall uh, that separates the world of the humans from the world of the White Walkers, which are these ice zombie creatures, right? And it turns out that there are also people who live beyond this wall in this outer world. And they're semi-feral, they wear animal skins, they're dirty. Uh, And his group, which are called the Crows, are the mortal enemies of these animal-like people. Well, our hero goes out beyond the wall and comes face-to-face with these zombie creatures. So he's got a handle on the threat that is coming for the kingdom, right? And so he goes back to his people and he says, look, I know that these uh, feral animal people have been our enemies for generations, but we need to band together because times are different and there's actually an even bigger threat. So we need to learn how to get along. And you know what happens to him? (laughs) He suggests that his crew surrounds him and stabs him to death. So... Uh, I just, I always think of that as being a great uh, storytelling metaphor for kind of what you're talking about, right? This woman is basically saying, uh, you know, it, she's not saying like, I'm switching over to the other side, right? But she's basically saying, hey, it's not the 70s anymore. Times are different. They have different concerns now. And uh, I don't know if you're the kind of person who immediately would react to that by saying, you know, you're a traitor and you should be put to death. Maybe that maybe you do need to step outside of your comfortable little reality tunnel for a while because you you're completely unhinged at that point. Yeah, I mean, I think that is sort of the diagnostic, isn't it? I mean, it, it just because where is is what's the next step for the people who are really uh, wanting to shout down this kind of leadership you know mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. there's there's nowhere to go there's absolutely yeah. no uh, they're calcifying and uh, turning into fossils you know in front of them you mm-hmm. know they're living fossils 
you know, and I think this is happening across the uh, the spectrum of, of all sorts of issues today. Wherever that word issue comes up, you can almost just think of rusted machines and bleached bones and, you know, just a kind of awful uh, decrepitude of mind, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are well, we... That's uh, good. Are we ready to uh, to hear some exciting, fresh, new, yeah. invigorated <laughs> uh, language and thought? Some new expression that is going to grab us and yeah. make us go, "Wow, it is possible yeah. to innovate." Yeah, we. Yeah, my first line of thought. I was uh, combing my brain for sort of recent. Uh, sort of strange things that that people do and I was having a lot of trouble coming up with anything but then I started thinking I've been doing a lot of looking into American divinatory practices and I came across a show recently that talked about two people uh, Gordon Wimsett the Bear Grease Kid and Richard Shaver so uh, Gordon Wimsett had a technique that he claimed to have learned from the natives uh, around his area of taking lard, bear grease, right, from bear fat, and putting it into a deer bladder, upon which time he could divine the weather, right? And Richard, Richard Shaver was a man who believed that he could hear voices through his drill bit, while he was uh, in a mine, I believe in Kentucky somewhere. And Richard Shaver eventually got to the point where he believed that if you broke open rocks and looked at the, at the striated lines, right? The, the striations, I guess you'd say, you could read an ancient alien language that could, that could tell you things, right? So with these divinatory methods, a new idiomatic expression for when a problem is just too big and too complex, right? And so you kind of choose to go a more magical, Fordian, animistic route, and somebody balks at that and says, well, that's nothing. You could say, well, it's, it's good enough for bear grease. So I like good enough for bear grease. And conversely, conversely, if... If somebody says uh, is presenting you uh, with a problem of similar scope, and you don't have the the answer for it, you could say uh, you might find some you, you might find your answers in a rock book, or you might have luck with a rock book. So those are my two. Okay. Well, look, I think that was again uh, a very very valiant intellectual imaginative effort there i i I, i'm i'm uh, sold on the bear grease i really like that Mm -hmm. i think i think bear grease just sounds interesting it's uh it's it's got uh, a kind of musicality and uh sort of uh, very it's very physical you know uh Mm -hmm. yeah and it's also kind of mysterious as those expressions are it's Right, that's what I was going for, right, like, you could say good enough for bear grease, and it's like, what? Good, what, what does that even mean? Well, 
you know, one of the things that I'm, that you've just helped me to, to really sort of get a little bit more focus on is where all of these expressions, these very mm -hmm. sort of public, in the know type of expressions. And uh, I just, I'll have to be a little bit crude for a moment because one of my favorite Australian expressions is who's fucking this pig? You know, you know, and uh, that's great. I the the Aussies uh, via the whole convict tradition and the Irish they have some wonderful expressions like that. It's just mm -hmm. it and and many many cultures do. If you take that whole field of language, and someone like our uh, John McWhorter, who's one of our heroes, would be really interesting to you know to talk about this with. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you look at the, the mood and the tone and what holds all of this body of extremely colorful, uh, descriptive, engaged with the world phrases together as an underlying social mechanism, I think there's a case to be made that unlike the re supposedly rhetorical things we've been talking about in terms of dog whistles and you know bogeymen and stuff like that there is a very precise difference all of these wonderful expressions including the one you just invented are about giving the other person the listener credit for understanding they're yeah, giving right. they're they're including they're welcoming they're inviting they're saying you get it don't you as opposed to the other things that's going, well, you don't get it. And not only don't you get it, anything that you do get is, it's not real. It's fake, you know? Mm -hmm, and I mm -hmm. think that is, it's that brutal and that stark a difference. One body of language is warm, generous, believing in the social good and a social connectedness. And the other is hostile anal retentive shriveled ossified brittle and basically mm -hmm. aggressive yeah absolutely well i'm glad you liked it good that was a good well challenge. done well done um so practical tip okay well this this builds very strongly on on what we've been talking about um and is uh i am going to move um the tips more into a mathematical frame, uh, beginning with our next episode. But I did want to sort of wind up with uh, it is language based, but it's really concept based, and it's it it it, link, it it's a movement forward towards the uh, mathematical ideas in the sense of pattern, pattern recognition. Too much of our definition, particularly uh, today, of, of what, is in, what is intelligence hinges on pattern recognition. If you research IQ tests and all their different varieties, and I spent a lot of time on this, uh, there's a huge bias towards pattern recognition. And that's important, but it's only one, one aspect. But the other thing about pattern recognition is it's often very boring, and it's not really uh, alive to the different kinds of patterns that are there. And one of my favorite expressions that, um, it actually comes from Ian Fleming. 
but it's used widely in, in the military and military intelligence, and you've heard it in, in several different movies. First time is happenstance. Second time is coincidence. The third time is enemy action. Okay? And that hits the rule of threes. Why is the rule of three an international, global, transhuman, magical idea? Because it's more than two and less than four. That's always the answer. It, it's the basis of patterns. It's very, very difficult to see a pattern in the first instance, isn't it? I mean, you think, well, hmm. But I have a feeling that we are alive to patterning at a very, very intuitive level. And this is my tip, is to, to trust your instincts about that. I was thinking of going back to 2015 when I was writer in residence in Seattle. Uh, before I met Lisa, I was sort of dating, you know, kind of semi-actively. Uh, and I met this one woman, and she used the expression, which is a common expression, this isn't my first rodeo. Mm-hmm. And I remember a little bell going off in my head. And I said to myself, I'm going to hear her use that expression several times in the next few times I see her. Sure enough, I was right. So I recognized a pattern on a purely intuitive basis the first time I met her. Now, I don't know how that comes up. I don't know how we do that. But I think that we all do tune into people in certain ways. We need to be more conscious of our own patterns, expressions that we use that keep coming up. I have another female friend who always uses the expression, well, that said, you know, and I just, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, okay, we all have sort of pat phrases that we use. We all have words that we overuse. Um, so it's about being self-aware. But the tool is to have a little bit of acceptance about your own intuition when it comes to pattern recognition before the pattern actually reveals itself. And right. I'm not talking about projecting, therefore you're seeing a pattern or you're imagining, you know, bogeyman and dog whistles, but, you know, no. I was exactly right. This woman does use that expression. This isn't my first rodeo. And I heard in her tone of voice a clue about that. And I trusted that. And I was right. And I think that we all have much better intuition about these things than we give ourselves credit for. So if you want to break it down, trust your intuition when it comes to pattern recognition before patterns actually firmly implant themselves. You know? Don't yeah, predetermine, no, is, but... Right. But you can tell after, I would say, a solid 10 or 15 minutes of spending any kind of time around a person. It's a little bit trickier through a computer because you can't see their face, but it has held true for me uh, my whole life. Uh, people have often thought that I was a little uh, quick to judge. And we don't want to be quick to judge. Nobody wants to be quick to judge. But I had uh, just a good radar for 
sort of the types of people I was interacting with after a very short time of interacting with them. Now, this practical tip in particular is interesting because it seems a little bit less of a value judgy, which I like, and, and more just um, a kind of a way for you to uh, connect with people in a way, honestly. Like, if you, if you can intuit that they are going to be the type of person who uses XYZ phrase, uh, you don't want to take that and think, okay, how do I exploit this? But you can recalibrate your knobs a little bit to be on their level, and I think that would just lead to a more fun and interesting social circle, honestly. Well, I'd like that you, you, you put that spin on it, uh, so to speak, because I think that is, you know, one of the problems with our anxieties about judging people all the time is we're yeah. also not engaging with them. We're not going, right. oh, well, this is how they play, you know? Right. And if we had and a if, bit and more if you of can that tell, fun play, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and if you can tell that they are the type of person who's going to say the words false equivalents... <laughs> Dump them. Dump them. I, I hope none of our listeners use it because I, I look. I'm, but I just can't apologize. It's it's like that old uh, vaudeville routine of Niagara Falls or slowly I turned. You know, I just hear false mm-hmm. equivalencies. I go slowly <laughs> I turned, step right. by step. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I had uh, some, I've been having incredibly vivid dreams this week, uh, premonition style dreams that have directly influenced the way that I've gone about my week and cautions that I've taken with certain uh, interactions and things like that, but they haven't been this um, sort of on the nose in quite some time. They're largely uninteresting, but just, you know sort of general people to stay away from. So I'm I'm interesting I'm blah, I'm interested rather in whether your dream world was particularly vivid this week or not and uh if so what was uh what was going on in in Chris dream world. Well, I was expecting something to do with kind of the moving situation and the strange neighbors below me who at in the in the final analysis, are simply running a kind of halfway house for people getting out of jail and prison, and and nothing connected with that uh, directly, but instead, um, I was actually fairly rooted in in a, a a situation in a place, as in being sort of the host, and I had three guests come to visit. And they were humanoid, uh, and I wouldn't say mechanical. Um, they were like sort of beautiful uh, artistic creations made of folded paper, kind of like origami people, genderless. And they didn't have complete uh, skulls. They were, and they didn't have really complete torsos. They were kind of intermittent. And they didn't seem to have any sort of issue with that. And they noticed my 
concern about their appearance. And they said in unison, and I would love to be able to uh, capture the, the tonal quality of this in, in a recorded music sense, because it was quite haunting. Distorted, and yet the apple, ap, just opposite of distortion. Just total clarity in a very odd hmm. way. But they said, we are complete in ways beyond your seeing. And I thought, oh, well, okay. And they presented me with what was completely incongruous with, with their appearance. Because they did look like these beautiful, sort of uh, very precisely made uh, folded paper, uh, sort of like beautiful Asian suits, you know? kind of mm -hmm. gender-neutral Asian suits made of extremely expensive paper folded by a master artist, and yet they weren't complete. And they were kind of um, intermittent in another sort of hologram sort of way. But they, mm -hmm. they offered me a very, very solid, conventional, main street bakery pink cake box. I mean, nothing more basic down to earth than that, you know? Checkered tablecloths, sugar bowls on the tables of the diner, you know? This was real small town American cake box. And they said to me, we have a question for you. Mm -hmm. And they're still speaking all in unison, one voice, this very strange voice. And I had already taken the cake box and I felt like completely checkmated, as if I could never move again. You know, I was the holder of the box. And I opened the box up and I thought they were all gonna freak out at me. But I thought, well, why did they give me the box if not to open it, right? You know. You right, gotta be, right. you know, you know, stand your ground even with weird intermittent half people, you know. Absolutely. And inside, if you could imagine a beautiful mannequin head, but made from an old-fashioned microphone, with all the metal meshing, so yeah. it's like this beautiful microphone, but big, the size of a real head. A generic mannequin head, but really just beautiful to look at. And they said, Our question for you is can you be trusted with the head? Because the head is actually the heart of the whole deal. And when they said that, I picked, I had I was cradling the head, and this and the pink cake box drops to the floor, and my God, it sounded like the end. It was just it echoed and echoed and echoed, and I woke up on that basis holding the head, that was the heart of the whole deal. But I dropped the box, and I didn't know if that had consequences or not. So. That was my uh, moving out of home dream. I don't know. I don't know awesome. what to to think of it.
I'll have to think about it too, but I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind is actually this show. Yes, I guess, right, microphone. Well, that's yeah. good. Thank you. I mean, that actually, I, yeah. uh, you're right, because I'm, I'm, I'm looking at, at the microphone that I use, and I, I'm very careful with that, and I, I, ha I, I have a, a, a crown royal purple bag that I put over it, and yeah. I wrap it in towels, and it's the <laughs> ceremonial thing, and I was concerned right. that it travels safely. So good. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right, All you right. bring clarity. Well, that's it's good enough for Bear Grease. <laughs>